Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism Episode 202 Resolving the Questions that Drive Us We finish up our discussion with meditation teacher Ken McLeod by exploring the importance of distinguishing between our questions and quote-unquote what the Buddha taught. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. So interesting that you touch on this um, struggle between the renunciate retreat path and the the daily life lay path. And this has been one of the biggest dichotomies that's come up in this show, actually, as we've interviewed different people. And we tend to want to talk to the people that are interested in bridging the gap or seeing through the dichotomy. But the fact that it is so strong and is so prevalent is fascinating. And one thing I noticed, and I wanted to see if you could maybe comment on this, is the idea or the notion that as far as awakening goes or enlightenment or realization or whatever words we want to use to describe that process, that somehow retreat environments are necessary and you kind of have to have that intensive practice mode in order to really deeply understand what it is that the Buddha was talking about. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about that, because that seems to be a lot of the reasoning behind the retreat life. And since you've done so much retreat, if you could maybe comment. The first place I would start that is, it isn't necessarily about understanding what the Buddha taught. A friend and colleague of mine, Stephen Batchelor, in his book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, said something which I'm going to paraphrase, this is the way I formulated this idea comes from him, it says, in its institutional forms, Buddhism provides very powerful answers to questions of the spirit. But sometimes the power of the answers overwhelms the stammering voice which is asking the questions. And rather than understanding what, trying to understand what Buddha taught, which is like, trying to receive an accepted truth. And that is a traditional way of approaching things. I encourage people to consider what are your questions about life? And how do you want to answer them? And then I will draw on my own training and experience to provide them with the tools and perspectives and whatever so that they become aware of the possibilities, develop some the skills that they need, and, and are able to progress towards the answers to their questions rather than this is what the Buddha taught, if you, if you see what I mean. And that I find it very helpful in, in removing the dichotomy. Now, another analogy that I found useful, and this actually comes from a person when he was started who's writing a critique of one of Karen Armstrong's books. A very good analogy for spiritual practice, I think, is it's a form of art. Let's take music. Now, if you're going to play a musical instrument, it really helps to practice. <laughs> and it helps to have a teacher. There are some people who are naturally talented, and they're able to play very easily and very, very well. But even those people benefit 
from consistent practice and from guidance from a teacher. And I'd like to push the analogy with music a, a bit further, or maybe with poetry, because I, I think of a, a line or something that Rilke said too, when he was asked, should I be a poet? A young poet wrote to him, and he, he replied, only be a poet if you have to. <laughs> many people engage spiritual practice because they think it will improve their lives, and many of the things will help them improve their lives. They'll become less distracted, less reactive, and so forth. But that's a kind of utilitarian approach to spiritual practice. Many other people approach practice, it's because something calls to them, and they simply have to do it. Now, that calling may lead them into retreat. They may find it helpful to spend time in retreat, much as we would go to tennis camp or hockey camp or music camp or something like that, to really focus on developing certain skills and abilities and deepening our understanding. That isn't necessarily the point of practices, is to spend time in retreat. That's the means by which we develop the abilities that we want to. And that's going to depend on every person, the extent to which those questions that they wish to engage, the questions in their life. And then I'm reminded of a piece that Sung Sen wrote, in which he discussed exactly this question, lay practice versus monastic practice. He said, forget about getting enlightened. That's the job of the professionals. <laughs> that is, the people who are uh, in retreat or had chosen that form of life or chosen monastic life. They're the ones who are get enlightened. As lay people, our job isn't to get enlightened. As lay people, our job is to function properly. And he goes on and on about what it means to function properly in life. And then at the end of it, he turns around and says, and mind you, the purpose of getting enlightened is to function properly. And getting enlightened, whatever that means, and that's a whole other question. Yeah. I'm just using that phrase because it's the phrase that he was using. I never use it myself, really. That refers to discovering or uncovering a certain way of experiencing the world which changes your relationship with experience itself. And the reason that that is important is because when you change that relationship with experience, you no longer struggle with experience, and it means that you are free to respond to experience in any way that is called for. In other words, the end result is that you become an ongoing response to the pain and suffering of the world. And that essentially is compassion, which I think is what Buddha's teaching is really aiming at. And I think that is the highest spiritual ideal, is a life of, that is based in compassion. And everything else, emptiness, non-self, all of this stuff, are means by which you come to be able to live that way. Interesting. And it, just to circle back to that quote from, uh, is it Sung Sin? Sung Sen, yes. Sung Sen. You know, that was interesting. That quote was kind of uh, highlighting the question to begin with and the, the way I was framing it. That he very much was breaking this into a dichotomy of the professionals, monastics, chief yeah. enlightenment, and then the rest of us. <laughs> for not the, that. The best we can do kind of in a way is like function properly or, or live a good life. Well, that's interesting. Let, let's take another analogy, okay? Drop the analogies on me, Ken. Basketball. Okay. Do you play basketball? I used to. Yeah. Do you enjoy it? I used to. <laughs> yeah. You get something out of it? I sort of remember getting something out of it, yes. Yeah. 
But, you know, lots of people play basketball. Like where I work out at the gym, there's always a bunch of guys on the court playing. Okay. Are any of them going to be Michael Jordan? Absolutely not. Okay. So there's a difference here. Well, maybe some of them. <laughs> yeah, maybe some of them. Many of the texts that we study, and I'm thinking of uh, one I translated recently, the Ganges Mahamudra. This was a text that was written for someone. It was written for Naropa, actually. That's like a Michael Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Kobe Bryant, okay? And if you're going to play at that level, you're going to practice, practice, practice. I read about a, a young NBA pro who, after everybody left for the day, would take out a basketball and he would stand at a certain point in the court and he would shoot jump shots until he could hit everyone from that point. And then he would move six inches to the left and shoot from there until he could hit every basket. And what he was doing was training his body so his body knew exactly how to shoot from every point in the court. Now, most of us who play basketball, and I don't, but, but most people who play basketball, they don't play it at that level. But that doesn't mean to say they don't get a lot out of it. Yeah, totally. Maybe just to push this analogy further, because I've often found this to be really helpful, and I've heard things like 10,000 hours is the minimum for mastery. Oh, and This is Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Gladwell and positive psychology and you know, looking at Tibetan cave yogis who spent like 60, 70, 80,000 hours you know, in the cave meditating. Yeah. Now, to push this analogy a little further and to maybe ask you a little bit about what is the aim of Buddhist practice? Because this is where I get confused with this analogy nowadays, is that I see the meditative dimension you know, of what you're talking about so clearly. You know, Having done retreats, there's no question when I spend a, a month or two practicing shamatha, for instance, that my skills in shamatha are just exponentially greater after that than they were beforehand. And yet, when I look at the wide range of Buddhist teachings, like you're saying, there's all sorts of dimensions to it that aren't necessarily directly tied into meditative attainments like generating compassion and developing certain ethical qualities. And so when I look at Buddhism, it's like a lot more complicated than something like basketball or even music, that it's not as narrow when it's taken as a whole. And I wonder how you would respond to that criticism, not a criticism, but just a confusion or a, a question, really. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what your question is, Vince. Well, the question has to do with the fact that Buddhism, the way it's explored is, you know, and the way I understand it, it's such a multidimensional arena, a conversation, like you're saying earlier, that it's not as simple as basketball, for instance, where the skills are very clear and one doesn't really talk about a basketball player going outside of basketball and living a meaningful uh, life. You oh, know what okay. I mean? I, I have you not. Okay. Well, I go back to the framework that I work from now is not trying to understand Buddhism as if it was something to be mastered, <laughs> but more, what are the questions I have about life? What are the questions you have about life? And how can this very rich and complex and very deep tradition help me come to some resolution with those questions? I mean, mm -hmm. what is human life for? How do you live with birth, old age, illness, and death? How do you live with evil? How do I live without struggling with what arises in my experience? I mean, these kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. And what I'm talking about here is really a, I suppose, in a certain sense, a postmodern perspective. And that is, 
I'm engaged in this life and I'm going to explore this life and there's certain things that I encounter that I don't understand and I don't know what to do with. And so I'm looking for help to do that. Now, for a long time, the answer was, well, if you want to engage that kind of thing, then you have to live this way and do this, etc., etc. I mean, that's certainly a valid approach for many, many people. But for most of the people that I work with, what they want is, is a way of answering their questions about life. They aren't looking to be told a, how to live their life, if you see what I mean. So it, it seems like there's, yeah, there's this postmodern aspect which you're talking about, which is finding the relevant questions, not figuring out what Buddhism's about, etc. And yet, like the way I personally approach the Buddhist tradition, I heard about enlightenment, and I felt very deeply something inside me, this is important, this is what I'm looking for. I don't know what it is, but intuitively I know there's something here that I'm looking for and I need to resolve this particular question. And that sounds like something that is the resolution of this. So I'm going to check into it. So very much approached it that way. I wasn't trying to figure out what the Buddha taught, but rather I wanted to know what is the resolution of this deep yearning or seeking that's going on here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, approaching it that way, I got kind of in the Buddhist culture and I heard lots of, you know, different perspectives and different practices. And, and over the years, my questions actually have changed, just kind of like you're saying that, you know, the way we approach it from a postmodern view is what are our questions and how can this help answer them? But then some of the questions I've had have, you know, been answered by very intelligent, helpful guides that have said things like, well, in order to really go to the heart of this, it can be helpful to develop these skills, for instance, develop shamatha, you know, and then be able to use that skill to observe the mind in this very fine-tuned way that, you know, wouldn't necessarily be possible just sitting an hour a day. Yes. Um, and that I found really helpful. And then at other times, I guess where I was getting at with this question is I found it so much more helpful to just be in the nitty-gritty of my relationships in the world and working with business and doing these things that have led to types of revelations and insights that I wouldn't put outside of the sphere of the insights and revelations from meditative practice. I see them as integrated now. And yet I wouldn't have been able to have those revelations in the retreat context. So I guess that's where I'm getting at with the, the whole professional thing is I wonder if, you know, these cave yogis, like, they were missing out on something, actually, that was really oh, important. Uh, now, I, now I get your question. Well, they're very good at certain things, aren't they? Mm. And we value their experience because they can reveal and show us possibilities that we wouldn't necessarily have come across in the course of, of our lives. If we take it up to that point, I think that's exactly how it works. Where it starts to break down for me is when someone tells us, this is how you should be living. <laughs> you should devote your life to a retreat. You should take a monastic ordination. This is the highest human goal, the best way to live a human life. That's where it breaks down as far as I'm concerned. And that's why I've encouraged people to, just as you describe yourself, be very clear about your questions and what you're trying to do in your practice so that you can make intelligent decisions about how you're living and, and how you work with the practice in your life. And it becomes part of your life rather than something that creates tension in your life. Mm, interesting. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And would you characterize that as being one of the features of a, of a postmodern approach to Buddhism? Well, I think so. But I also think it's 
what many of the people that we regard as founding traditions actually did. They found that the circumstances in which they were practicing didn't resolve the questions that were on their mind, and they went out and found a way of practicing or started doing something different which addressed their questions. Mm. One person, uh, I think, falls into this category is a Tibetan teacher that not a lot of people know about, even though it's very important, is a person called Chungpa Naljur, who was the person who established the Shangpa tradition, which was one of the traditions that Kala Rinpoche held. He was the lineage holder for the Shangpa tradition. Chungpa Naljur lived in the 11th century, along with Marpa and Milarepa and Atisha and all of those people. It's a very, very pivotal era for Tibetan Buddhism. And he started off, and he was a, um, a Bun priest by training, but found that he couldn't answer his questions in the Bun tradition. And so he became a, uh, started studying Dzogchen, practicing it. And he became a highly regarded Dzogchen teacher, but it still didn't answer his questions. And then he told his parents, and he's an adult by now, of course, but he was going to go to India, and they said, well, who will take care of us? So he said, okay, I won't go to India, I'll take care of you. And he studied with a Mahamudra teacher. And that didn't answer his questions. And then he went and studied with another Mahamudra teacher who said after a few months, you know, you know everything that I do. And basically, Chungpa Naljur said under his breath, well, that means you know nothing because I don't know anything. And by then, his parents had died. And then he set off to India at the age of 57, which is like a 75-year-old man in our society <laughs> deciding to walk across America. <laughs> <laughs> and he studied with 150 teachers, as the tradition says, until he found Nikama, a woman who was able to respond to his questions. And later on, Sukha City, another uh, uh, woman. And I found this story tremendously inspiring because it shows that what's really important is you have certain questions, you've got to find the answers to them or the way of life that answers those. And that's not something that can necessarily be given. The question that comes up to me when hearing that is, what is it that makes us have these certain questions? Or where do these questions come from? And why, why is it that they can be so individual and yet many people often share similar questions? Do you have a way of, of relating to that question? Wow, I don't think I've considered that question. Where do these questions come from? Ah, well, a somewhat possibly scientific way of looking at it is they come from the complexity of the organism that we are in, in our relationship with our environment. I mean, if you're an amoeba, you only have a couple of things to do is to uh, swim and whenever you come across something that's edible, you surround it and ingest it. Uh, so you don't have a lot of choice, right? Sure. But when you're a human being, you have a lot more choice. And inevitably, those choices raise conflicting priorities. And I think that's where the uh, questions come from. So interesting, because part of the way I've been looking at contemplative practice and my questions is, so it seems kind of strange that some of my questions have to do with seeing that my identity is not limited to what I thought was me. That, that, that <laughs> just seems like a really trippy thing, just generally. 
Well, your identity is basically a story, isn't it? It seems like an ever-expanding one sometimes. Well, it's an expanding one. It's a constantly evolving one. But what we call a self is actually a story about our experience of life. And we construct the story because we're trying to give some order to what is actually a remarkably chaotic process. (laughs) And then we get seduced by the seeming consistency of the story that we've constructed. And now, instead of just relating directly to our experience, increasingly try to relate to our experience in terms of the story. And that's where the difficulties start. And one way of looking at Buddhism, it's training you, and this is why meditation and shamatha, as you've referred to a couple of times, is very important, because it's a way of learning how to relate to life without stories. And that just opens up extraordinary possibilities. I should be a little more precise than that. It's a way of learning how to relate to life without believing the stories that we come up to in order to relate to life. Mm, So it sounds like the stories continue, but there's a different relationship. Exactly. And then in the story part, it sounds like you're saying there's an evolution or there's a process that the stories are going through. The stories are going through their own process. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, do you have the same idea about things that you did when you were five years old? No. <laughs> well, one of the exercises that I give people on impermanence is to go through their lives and look at how they viewed the world, who their friends were, what was important to them, and do this in five-year intervals. And they come out of that realizing, wow, I thought I was consistent, but everything changes. (laughs) Hmm. And it's interesting because when I hear you talk about that change, you've mentioned the word evolution several times, and that seems to be a little bit different than the way traditionally Buddhism is formulated, that there's samsara, this is the spinning wheel, the cycle of existence. You know, And in a cycle, there's not necessarily a trajectory. <laughs> it's kind of like we're doing the same old thing over and over. But it sounds like the way you're talking about it, it's not such a perfectly cyclic thing. It's, there's some trajectory, there's some movement, some, the Greeks use the word eros, there's some upward mobility, I guess you could say. Could you well, maybe think, comment on that? I think we have to be very careful there, because... Evolution isn't necessarily evolution to something. It's just evolution. I mean, you know, we had the trilobites, tribolites, or whatever they're called, and they evolved, and then circumstances changed, and then something else evolved, and the dinosaurs came along, then the meteor smashed into the world, and they got wiped out, and the mammals evolved, and now we have climate change, and maybe the human species gets wiped out or drastically reduced, and something else evolves. I don't think we can say necessarily that evolution has a direction or is evolving to something. It just keeps evolving. <laughs> and yet you, you mentioned that as humans we have greater, greater degrees of choice. So that to me has a value that's, that I, I would say is moving toward the greater choice in the universe from the Big Bang. You know, there's, each being seems to have a greater choice. Well, what happens if human beings render the earth uninhabitable by human beings? Could happen. Yeah. (laughs) And that would still be a process of evolution. It would would have closed down, and what it would have 
established was that at least the way human beings evolved choice, it didn't, uh, it wasn't conducive to their survival. Cool. Well, thanks for letting me um, kind of play with that idea with you and just explore it because that's one thing that we've explored some with different guests, the way that people conceive of life itself or the where is this heading, what's the meaning of this. Um, mm-hmm. Those are questions that I consider kind of part of the modern or postmodern investigation. So I appreciate getting your take on some of those things. Yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, it comes down to a few principles. One thing is that everything is a product of evolution, you know, whether it's the computer network, which we're using to communicate right now, or a paperclip, or a tree, or uh, fashion. Everything can be seen as part of an evolutionary process. As I said before, I don't think evolution is to something. I don't think there is an intrinsic direction in it. The third thing that I found is very, very important is, because people can take that and say, well, then it doesn't matter what we do. But our actions have very, very real effects. There are real consequences to our actions, both for ourselves and for the people around us. So we have to pay attention to how we act. And the other thing is that we actually never know what the results of our actions are going to be in the long term because they initiate other processes in the world and we can never tell how those things are going to work out. So what looked very intelligent at one point can look very stupid when circumstances change and vice versa. (laughs) So it's all a very big puzzle as far as I'm concerned and here we are in it. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.